0: Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. This week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we have a very special episode. We are going to be featuring a recording of Mary Beth Mackin. Mary Beth Mackin is a past president of ASCA. She's also a past treasurer. She is the namesake for the Mary Beth Mackin Foundations of Professional Practice Track at the Donald D. Gearing Academy. She is the co-author of the First Amendment uh, on College Campus book. And she was just a giant in the field of Student conduct. She also served as the Dean of Students at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, and today is the two-year anniversary of when we lost Mary Beth. She's having a garden dedicated to her today at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, and we are releasing this audio with permission from her partner, Susan, and we're very grateful for Susan for allowing us to share Mary Beth's voice with you, all the listeners. Uh, if you're a new professional coming up in the field, please know that Mary Beth is someone that is so near and dear to the those of us who have been around for a little while. And she's just a person that I hope her memory lives on for the profession because she gave so much. Uh, I'm also excited to welcome back Lee Bird to the podcast. And she's going to be talking about her reflections on Mary Beth before we get into the actual interview. Lee and Mary Beth were incredibly good friends and they grew up together in student conduct and rose to their senior leadership positions. So I'm going to turn it over to Lee. You know, it's it's hard to kind of pick a point and talk about
1: Mary Beth because she was um, a huge part of my experience with ASCA, and I'd have to say she was the best part uh, of that experience. Um, I, Sonny and Phil Burns, I mean, I have lots of friends. Mary Beth and I were elected onto the board at about the same time. Mary Beth served as a treasurer and, and many other things for the association. In fact, most things for the association, um, becoming president after after my presidency. But it was, it was serving on the board, working through the issues when we were not as Large, we didn't have any staff. It was we had one one staff member that was working at A and um, so it was just it was a smaller organization, but a but a powerful organization, and. Um, it was just a, a great experience. So I think I think going to the conferences and kinda of hanging out and um you know a little bit of the Bobsy twins I think going on. Some people would call her Lee and some people would call me Mary Beth and it was it was actually quite an honor. Um but we were always hanging out together and we were always at the conferences together and um the academy together. Um wonderful, just wonderful memories of being at the in Utah at the uh, Don Garing Academy, and teaching there, and having the opportunity to sit with new folks that were coming into the profession. And this is, I think, you know, when I when I think of Mary Beth, and um, I still miss her every day. But when I think of Mary Beth, I think about her grace, her friendship, um, her ability to meet total strangers and make friends with them, and her. her she was a servant. Um, she was incredibly bright, very well spoken, and just funny as hell. I mean, we just we laughed a, a lot, um, and we knew each other for, well, I think over twenty years. In two thousand four, two thousand five, um, I approached her with the notion of doing a book about the First Amendment, and. At first, she said, oh, well, I can certainly type. I'll help you any way I can. Well, and we we hadn't really worked at that level. And I found somebody who was uh, a great writer, a great researcher, a great thinker. And Mary Beth and Sonny and I had a blast putting that together, um, Sonny Schuster. So it was – and that was clearly a labor of love. I spent a week at her house. She spent a week at my house. She never slept well. So she was uh, up at the you know four a m um ready to start working and and you know I was getting to it at about nine or ten um and then she'd head to bed and I'd start working on it until two in the morning so it was it was just it was one of the best best things we did and then uh in December of two thousand and six when we got to see the cover of the book for the first time, and folks like Liz Lizbalazan and Sonny were in Las Vegas for the for the unveiling, because we were doing a little conference there, presentation, and um, what a joy that weekend was to see that. So, just so many good memories of, of working together, laughing together, problem-solving together. Um, we talked a lot by phone. Um, if, if I had something going on on my campus or she had something going on on hers, you know, she was, she was my first call for probably 90% of the problems because I knew she would be honest. She would tell me what was going on. She'd give me very sound advice. We'd have a few laughs. And, you know, we'd move on. And she was, she knew how to be a dear friend because she was there to support, to encourage, to make you laugh. Um, To give you a hard time, just all the things that you would cherish a relationship for, I got Mary Beth.
0: One of my favorite things about Mary Beth is that no matter who you were in the association, she was going to help you however she could. No doubt, and um, loved loved working with the new folks to the profession.
1: Um, loved answering questions. Loved being a mentor. Loved um, just helping people love the association the way um, the way she did, and um, to see the value in the association the way she did. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Jill. She was kind of one of a kind um, to do that and, and did it at the academy, did it at the conference, and she was kind of the first volunteer for, for everything. But you didn't have to seek her out or ask her. She'd just say, hey, how you doing, strike up a conversation, and, um, you know, you, you would have an association with her for years. She was just that kind of person.
0: And I think that's so evident, and you know, we've, we've named the um, the track for Foundations of Student Conduct as the Mary Beth Mackin Foundations of Student Conduct track for Caring Academy, and so I think that's just yes. an incredibly fitting tribute to the mentorship that she gave so many people in the field. Um, Absolutely. So, I, you know, I think of the the three of you being you, Sonny, and, and Mary Beth, is kind of like this powerhouse trio of women who are doing amazing things for the field. So uh, what do you think Mary Beth would think of where the association is going now? Um, you know, sh-
1: sh- we all have our own challenges uh, with, our, with our work. <laughs> I was just going to say something kind of irreverent, and I pulled <laughs> back from that. Now I'm over it. Um, I think she would be, I think... Um, because of her life, her sense of ethics, her full appreciation of diversity, and everything else, I think she would be we would be having more conversations about world and national politics, and probably a lot of swear words would be involved. <laughs> and but I think the association, she would be glad it's growing glad that it is working with the membership to try to deliver more services, to try to, you know, as it always has, um, build a sense of community uh, around the people that do this work, because it can be it can be very lonely. It can be very hard. And, and folks that do this work, even in student affairs, even as a vice president, it gets kind of lonely sometimes, and you're having to make decisions that are difficult. And I think she would be proud of the educational work that's going on. Um, I know she would be so honored uh, about the foundation being named after her because that's something that she truly loved. She did the uh, uh, ethics session in that many, many times. So I just I I think she'd be proud of the association, disappointed by national politics. And but that's yeah, because we had lots of conversations about all those things.
0: Thank you so much, Lee, for sharing some wonderful reflections about Mary Beth and her legacy and who she was. Uh, we're looking forward to sharing her interview with uh, with membership and the podcast listenership. Uh, do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to to share with us?
1: No, but but for those of us who knew her, worked with her, and and I'm sure even to some people that didn't have that um, blessing in their lives, um, she was truly one of a kind and absolutely the just the best and dearest friend. Um, Most people don't, I don't know if most people know this, but we also went to China together and did some suicide prevention programming there. Again, just a blast to travel with her and to have that opportunity. So uh, I am, I know um, how blessed I am that I had her in my life for as long as I did, but I still miss her every day. She was a a profound leader for the association, uh, a voice for, for inclusion. Uh, A voice for support. And uh, that voice has been diminished, but I think it's up to us to, you know, a mixing metaphors, but kind of light the torch and carry on in, in her name as well.
0: Thank you so much, Lee, for sharing all of these beautiful thoughts about Mary Beth. Now we're going to go ahead and get into the interview. Again, this interview was recorded in the summer of 2015 at the Donald D. Gehring Academy. The impetus for the interview was that it was um, an oral history collection point for the association. So the person conducting the interview is Audrey, and Audrey was our student intern for the summer. She was at the time a grad student at Texas A&M University. So the audio quality is not going to be as strong as you might normally be used to you on the podcast, but I promise that the uh, interview was worth sticking around for. So thanks so much, and here we go.
2: Alrighty, if you could give me your name, current position, and a brief review of how you got okay. to where you
3: are. Well, my name is Mary Beth Mack, and I am currently the dean of students at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater, and that's a public four-year institution in Wisconsin of about 13,000 students so typical middle-of-the-road institution you know we were talking about residence life and like so many of the folks in ASCA that's where my career path started when I was um, an undergraduate I was majoring in special education thought I would be a teacher and you know nobody tells folks in high school that there are careers in student affairs Right. and got involved on campus then became an RA and took that career path. Went to graduate school at Southern Cal where I served as a hall director as a graduate student and then took a position at Ball State University where I served as a hall director. And then started looking at you know where I wanted to go next. I was convinced I would be a long-time residence life professional. I didn't see myself being in any other office at any point in time. And quite honestly at that point in time there were fewer opportunities within student affairs. At that point, when I was a hall director, there were very few, of any, institutions that that had standalone student conduct offices. They were up and coming. There was certainly student conduct within residence life. And so I took a position actually at UW-Whitewater that I thought I would stay in maybe three to five years, which was similar to an area coordinator position. Uh, that wasn't the title we used, but Um, it combined two of my loves. It was coordinating student conduct for the Residence Life Program and staff development. So hiring Mm -hmm. RAs, hiring hall directors, working with all of the training and development of those. And those were my two passions at that point in time. In fact, as the years I was a a hall director, we had, we wouldn't have called it a hearing board at the time, but there was something called the DAC or the Disciplinary Advisory Council, which in Mm -hmm. essence did any hearings that were required on campus and I served on that and shared that as a hall director and that's where my passion for conduct came from but back then I think that, that was pre-ASCA or at that point pre-ASJA and so there was no literature there was no um, professional association there really wasn't anything related to student conduct at any rate um, once I got to UW-Whitewater again I thought I'd be there three to five years but different opportunities opened up I took some administrative roles in residence life and actually for a few years took a position where I did contracts and um, more of the administrative area. And then our then-vice president approached me. He wanted to create a more formalized student conduct position on campus. We had no centralized student conduct, which is really interesting, for things outside of the residence halls really. And in the rare event that an incident came up that needed to be addressed, somebody was just tapped to do it he wanted to formalize that more so he wanted to create a position that would be half time but even half time wouldn't deal with all student conduct in that half time position it would also serve as an assistant to the vice president doing different things okay. and so i agreed to do that and did that for a while and then we created a dean of students office at one point and i took the role of assistant dean of students and then a few years ago, took the role of Dean of Students on campus, so my two years quickly turned into more than 25.
2: <laughs> All right, thank you. How have you seen student conduct evolve so far, and then how do you see it evolving in the, new, in the near future? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I think I talked a little bit about that. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly, first we need to look at our students, and we see students getting involved, unfortunately, in more. Um, negative behaviors or poor behavioral choices than they used to and when I as I mentioned when I first started working in student conduct most of the of the policy violations occurred within residents life that's not to say they didn't happen on a on a larger basis but if they did I think the institution was less likely to know about them or to address them mm-hmm. unless they were really big-ticket violations a host of things have required us to pay more attention to that significantly talking about liability institutions are being sued for not supervising their students and being sued for you know to take a look at where we are right now with sexual misconduct in Title IX it's been made really clear to us that we have a responsibility to respond to student on student harassment and so it's Mm -hmm. things like that that have required us to get more involved but as I mentioned over my career there was no ASCA, and, and we were first ASJA. Once ASJA was formed, I think that's what started to transform things. It allowed professionals to come together and to talk about what were the presenting issues on campus, what are the laws that govern us, but more importantly, what are the best ways to be effective? What, what are our goals? I don't think we were talking about that intentionally. Mm-hmm. One could go to an ACPA or a NASPA or an ACUHO and there might be a program here or there related to student conduct, but, but it really wasn't. And so, you know, I, I'd like to, it would be interesting to, to do something similar to what Peter Lake has done with the different era, the bystander era and others to think about how that, how student conduct has gone through those eras. Because I think then we got, we started out heavily in the law and policy, although we didn't have nearly as many guidance in law and policy issues, but that's what we focused on. And then I think we started trying to figure out how to merge that with student learning. And then we started getting hit, you know, first FERPA became a, a big issue, and then Clery, you know, in the late 90s became, well, more than the late, earlier 90s became a big issue. Mm-hmm. I think it's 25 years, so it started out in the early 90s, um, but even as that was amended, I think it was 98 when the Mourner Amendment was passed to allow for parental notification. And So all these times we're focusing on law and policy, and what do we need to do with that? And creating the Cleary reports, et cetera, that took took a big emphasis in our profession. Mm -hmm. And then certainly now, uh, then then I think the next big event was after the Virginia Tech shooting. I saw our field focus really heavily on threat assessment and how we respond from conduct offices in terms of behavior intervention and other things. And then certainly in the last few years, um, after the April 2011 Dear Colleague Letter, it was really the Title IX things and now, now just in this last year or so, the VAWA amendments to Cleary related to sexual misconduct, dating violence, domestic violence, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So law and policy has certainly driven what we do, as well as current events like the Virginia Tech massacre, uh, other things.
2: You kind of touched on this, but if, so if there's anything else you want to add, that's fine. Um, but what are some major issues you've seen arise so far in student conduct, and what new issues do you see surfacing in the next 10 years?
3: hmm but you know what I think I see surfacing is we've got to find that fine balance. So the pendulum keeps swinging. We have gotten so legalistic. You know I, I look at what Cleary requires now and what Title IX require, and, and one of the frustrations, and some some of my peers might argue with me. I think we've, we've been scared to death of we, you know, oh gosh, if you know, $35,000 per Cleary violation, and now we've added all this stuff on, and um, people are so paralyzed by their fear of that. And I think about my own work, my daily work, the amount of time I spend dealing with Cleary as a dean of students, dealing with either Cleary or Title Nine or other things is ridiculous in terms of versus time that could be spent one-on-one with students. There's a uh, vice president for student affairs who wrote a great op-ed piece for the chronicle last about a year ago and he titled it the legalization of student affairs and that was his exact premise um, Brian Carlisle's his name and he was talking about how all this focus on how we comply with the law is taking away from what really matters. I, I read another article this summer, it was, it was a retrospective, it was in the Chronicle, and it was a retrospective 25 years after the Clery Act has it made a difference. And they interviewed one campus police chief at one institution and she laid out the figures for what Clery Act compliance costs her campus. And, and she wasn't just pulling these out of thin air, I mean it was right there in black and white here's what we spend on this, on this, on this, on this. Well, and the, the figure just for her campus alone was in excess of $400,000 for one year to comply with Clery. And that did not even take into a, to account each individual... Hall director, anyone who's a CSA, I mean, their time didn't take that into account. Mm-hmm. But if there's one campus that's spending in excess of $400,000, I know one of my neighboring campuses in Wisconsin, our flagship campus, last year hired three Cleary Act coordinators. Mm-hmm. So when I think about the amount of <clears throat> resources expended on that, it's staggering. Think of what we could do with that money otherwise. Mm-hmm. But I think we're so paralyzed with that. It's so easy to forget why we're doing what we're doing. It's certainly part of why we're doing what we're doing is to keep our campuses safe. You know, we can't let anarchy rule. I mean we have to make sure that a faculty member can teach in their classroom and that people can go about safely. I I get that. We've got to keep the anarchy down. But ultimately what we're doing, what we're doing to develop students as people. And when we're so focused on policy compliance and law it's difficult to do that i think cleary and other legislation is out of control right now and i also think we're not getting the guidance from the federal government that we need you know a perfect example i look at all the recent amendments to cleary they have not yet updated the cleary handbook to tell us how to comply with those and so it's sort of it's sort of this really odd we want you to do what we want you to. Do. You better do this. You better do it right. Well, and then if you pose a question to them, how would you like us to do that? They won't answer. I've posed questions to OCR officials. Um, could you help me understand what your expectation would be in regard to this? And I've been told, oh, we don't know. How? how can we operate within that? Yet, yet if you don't get it right, we're coming after you. Yeah, it's crazy. So I think, I think in terms of our field and we've started to do this through ASCA is to take control. Let's not sit back and wait for them to tell us what to do. Let's take control and go out there and pose the questions and offer suggestions and offer resolutions. Because it's a we're on a collision course.
2: We talked about this a little at the beginning but how did you decide to get into student conduct?
3: I just loved it and I mentioned it goes back to when I was a hall director and chaired the DAC or the Disciplinary Advisory Council which is just a funny name but <laughs> I saw the power to really impact students' lives. And and by impact I mean because ultimately it's the student him or herself who has to make that decision, mm-hmm. but but by being an empathetic being, you know, I think I think I even go back to my time as a student and I would have been scared to death. Um, And I I do think some of the best conduct officers are folks who are on the other side of the coin as students. But, But I know, knowing that students coming into a conduct officer's office are going to be scared to death, how can we, how critical it is to treat that person with respect and understanding and still hold them accountable, but ultimately we want the student to hold him or herself accountable. And I'm not going to get that way if I'm, you know, because I said so, sort of, but I saw the transformative power of an institutional official who could be empathetic and treat a student with respect. I saw the power of helping the student react to that, seeing how the student reacted to that in transforming their own life and making better decisions. And I just think, there is certainly everybody in student affairs impacts students, and I get to do a lot of things other than conduct, but in in working with student conduct or any kind of crisis management, there's this really rare opportunity to be with a student, to really be with them when they're in a very vulnerable place. And there's a very limited amount of time that you can both be there together, but that's when really real change or transformation can occur. Mm -hmm. Half hour later, that moment might be gone. But I think it's a a fascinating art and challenge to be able to get there with a student. And, And that's when you see such incredible change occur.
2: So what do you see as the needs of current ASCA members? And how do you think the association is meeting these needs?
3: Well, you know, part of that is knowledge and education. I mean, part of it is I need somebody to help me synthesize everything that's coming at me. You know, it's it's coming full blast you know every it seems like every time we turn around somebody has proposed different legislation so we need the John Lowry's of the world the Sonny Schuster's the Scott Lewis's to be the ones who are on top of that our legislative issues committee we need those folks who are on top of that who can synth- synthesize that information for us and provide us with that education and that's critical and that's probably I think always going to be the primary mission of ASCA But I think, yeah, maybe maybe this is even a tie. I think the other important mission of ASCA that all conduct officers need is that community. Nobody else does what we do. Nobody else on our campuses understand that. Yesterday um, in her session, Kathy Cox was, was using the example of, we've all had this happen to us where people on campus say, oh, I never want your job. I could never do your job. And she said, and here's how you respond to them. You're right, you couldn't. Um, And and she's being a little bit facetious. But the point being, it's really hard, tough work, and nobody understands it on our own. Very few people, unless you have Mm -hmm. colleagues. And we have, I'd venture to guess that the majority of the participants here might be the only ones on their campus that does this kind of work. And so there's, being that there's no one else there that can truly understand how hard it is to look a student in the eyes and say, you're done here. there has to be that community of support of people who get it. And in fact, when the, you know, you'll hear the story of when the association was formed, a group of people that they're the only folks who understand. I know every year when I, and I felt this way for years, when I go to the annual conference in Florida, there's something about the first time I walk into the lobby of whatever hotel we're in and look around and see friendly faces, it feels like I'm home. You know, because these are people and, and there will be, be hundreds of people at any given conference I've never met before in my life there will be hundreds of people that are old friends but most importantly everybody there gets it I don't have to explain to anybody else not only what I do but the feelings I've experienced with angry parents and legislators and you name it uh, so that, that support for us mm-hmm. I think is just as critical as that education piece
2: so do you see these needs changing in the near future?
3: I truly don't. I think those two are timeless. I think we will always need that education. So part of the education is certainly the law and policy and what's happening. But part of it is the, hey, here's something we're doing on our campus that really works. Here's a novel new idea. Here's what we've learned by something we do. So that the education, I think that's always going to be one of the primary missions of any professional association. Um, and And we'll never need lose the need for that support either. We just won't
2: yeah. so then what are your hopes and goals for the future of this association?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, number one, that we don't lose those, and I think that's getting it's getting harder simply because we're growing, which is a good thing. I mean, we want to grow, but the more we grow, number one, the more we bring in different and diverse perspectives that can can provide us with more education the more we bring in different talents, the more we bring in resources, financial resources, to be able to do other things, the downside of that is the more you grow, the easier it is to lose that community feel, that collegial feel, and I I hope we find ways to do that. I hope we find ways to manage our growth. It's real easy, I think, when we grow too fast to not be intentional about it, and to lose connection between what committees, whether it be the conference committee or the board or others, or for the board to lose touch with the members, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so I hope nobody ever loses sight of the fact that we're here to serve the members. That's got to be primary. Mm -hmm. And it's not about us. It's about how we serve the members.
2: What advice do you have for new professionals working in student (laughs) conduct?
3: That's a great question. Be proud of what you do and know what a difference you make. You know, I've always subscribed to the, I call it the the drop of water theory, in that I think every interaction that someone working in student conduct has with a student puts some drops of water in their glass. Sometimes we might add a trickle, sometimes it's a drop here and a drop there. And on that particular day when we've had that hard conversation, that may not be the day that that glass overflows but someday that glass is gonna overflow and it wouldn't have happened without those drops. And, and I think that's a good analogy for student conduct because we often don't see immediate results to our work. I mean, sure, the, behavior, the, the negative behavior may stop and one could argue that that's, that's what we were hoping to achieve, but I truly believe what we're hoping to achieve goes deeper than that. We are hoping to help stu- students learn and grow and look at themselves and evaluate the decisions they make and become the person that they want to be. It's not going to happen, That you know, it's not like I, I meet with a student one day and the next day they're a transformed person. Mm-hmm. But if I've planted seeds, or any conduct professional has planted seeds, maybe two weeks from now when that student is faced with a similar situation, might think about it in a different way and so that's what's i think difficult for conduct work especially for an entry-level professional is that you're not going to see those immediate results trust in your gut that you're doing good things trust in what you're doing be true to yourself be a good role model and truly care about the students all students you know i think it's real we all have those students we don't like and it's (laughs) those are the ones who most need our respect and understanding and so sometimes we have to dig deep because, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've experienced that person who just gets on your nerves <laughs> and they challenge you and it's almost like they're trying to piss you off mm-hmm. and they're trying to be a jerk and it's really hard to want to try and help that. That's human nature. But again, I would, I would say that's the person who most needs mm-hmm. and who would most benefit from someone because they likely, they're behaving that way because they've learned, that's, that's a learned behavior and they don't expect anyone to be nice to them or understand them. And if we can fight our way through that and be an understanding person who cares about their well-being, again, mm-hmm. that's when we'll make a difference. But but never doubt or never second-guess that you're making a huge and important difference in doing incredibly important work.
2: In your opinion, what has been the greatest impact that this association has made?
3: I think it goes to the individual people. And, and you know, we could talk about grandiose things. Well. You know, we, we published the Student Conduct Practice book, or we um, went to the White House, or we did, those are great things. I don't think they're our most important thing. The most important thing is providing and continuing to provide a forum for people to connect. I think that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I could get that knowledge piece elsewhere. Might not be as easy. I could read the Chronicle. I could, you know, subscribe to other things. I could go to a NASPA session and I could get the knowledge piece. I could have, a, you know, NASPA could advocate for me. What I wouldn't have and what NASPA can't give me in the same way is that person-to-person connection mm-hmm. with someone who really understands this line of work.
2: When did you attend your first ASCA slash ASJA conference, mm-hmm. um, and what was it like? So. The presenters or types of sessions they had, mm-hmm. attendees, that kind
3: of thing. I went to. I did not. I believe I was at the second annual conference. It might have even been the first, but I know for sure it was at the second. I, I mm-hmm. started my position in where I am in my current school in 1987, and the first time I ever heard of an ASCA conference, I went, and I haven't missed one since. So ASJA back then. Mm-hmm. And that's when we were in Clearwater, uh, Clearwater Beach, back at the Holiday Inn Surfside. And back then, the conference butted up to the Stetson Law Conference. So ASJA would be first and then Stetson Law. So for those first five or six years, I went to both of them, which was a great experience and really stretched my mind. Um, Of course, much smaller. Uh, And a few years ago, I wish I hadn't done this. We moved offices a few years ago and had to purge a bunch of files. And I think some of my really, really early ASJA files got, unfortunately, recycled at that point. But I remember at one point laughing because it was the program, you know, for the conference. And I think about how, you know, now, of course, it's all on guidebook. Not too many years ago, you know, participants, in fact, the year I was conference chair, I was just talking about this. Um, we had this, you know, massively thick notebook where we would get all the presenters to send their um, powerpoints or whatever. It probably wasn't even powerpoints at that time. Handouts electronically, and we would print them. And every participant would get this three-inch binder with all the handouts but before that and this was I, I remember it was probably a you know a half sheet but it was a little booklet like you know sheet like this folded in half and it was uh, it was a even a poor copy you know it was a, it was looked like it had been done on a typewriter clearly and it was a poor copy and it was probably eight pages long with just a little blurb for what each session was going to be not nearly as many sessions but but even then i remembered thinking these people get what i do Um, And so to watch the conference grow, you know, after a while we had to move away from the the Holiday Inn, and people used to say we moved across the bridge down to Sand Key. Um, And when we were at the Sheraton there for many years, and, and I miss the Sheraton still, and again that's the negative side of growth. What I loved when we were in the Sheraton, it was a great location on the beach, number one, but we would be the only folks in that hotel, and you couldn't you couldn't help but see everybody every day you couldn't go you just were all there all the time and then we also occupied the hotel across the street um, and then outgrew that and moved where we are now and we will be moving again so yeah, the number the number of sessions has certainly increased um, we've added so much more I know the year that I was conference chair we, we added the volleyball tournament we added golf, a golf outing that doesn't happen anymore we started the silent auction um, before we even had the foundation, per se. So, yeah, we've, we've moved on. We've seen um, we, the, the conference schedule. I mean, we shifted days, but the conference schedule itself has not changed that much. Mm-hmm. The topics have certainly changed. And numbers.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, numbers. Just a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> So when ASCA, ASJA originated, um, what were perceived to be the needs of the members and how did the association plan to meet these needs?
3: Well, I I think, again, they were similar, that one of the needs that was perceived was to have a place for people doing this work to gather in support of one another. But I think the other perceived need, again, is similar to today, which was a place to share knowledge a place to share best practices, a place to know what are the legal requirements that, that we need to abide by, but, but what are people doing that's a novel idea? You know, and again, it wasn't uncommon then to go to a program that might be about creative educational sanctions or those mm-hmm. kind of things. So I don't think the needs have really changed that much. I think ASCA has become more of a proactive advocacy organization, you know, as, as we have grown. But I think that's how those initial needs were perceived and I think they were met in very similar ways and it was bringing the leaders of the profession together to discuss that and figure out where to go from there. You know, We didn't always have an academy and so in the history of our association that was one of the ways that the leadership, the board decided, hey, here's something else we need to do to be able to to meet these needs. Um, we didn't have webinars or other things and I remember at one point we said hey we need to develop and at that we thought we were you know, really cutting edge we did one webinar a year and we partnered with NASPA and that was before today's technology and so whoever was participating actually had to fly to you know be filmed and, and to do that and so um, so we are Technology has changed what we do, and our size has changed how we do it. You know, it's changed how we do things. I don't think our needs have really changed at all. Certainly, it was done very differently. Um, we didn't have an executive director. You know, when I was sharing this at breakfast. When I was conference chair, there was no executive director, although by that point we had an office at Texas A&M. We had a part-time clerical person at first which then turned into a full-time clerical person but so that meant that the board really did all of their own stuff Um, the conference chair we didn't really even have a conference committee back then they did all their own work you know was there was nothing done centrally other than um, people did register in the central office but back then that wasn't even done electronically I mean you mailed in your registration form and and your payments so now how we do our work I think has changed I don't know that the work we do has changed
2: how did ASJA begin to build its membership when it first started?
3: Word of mouth. Um, again, I remember uh, getting something in the mail advertising ASJA and thinking, wow, this is exactly what I need. I do student conduct. That's when I was in residence life, where half of my job was student conduct, half was staff development. And it was easy to get the staff development resources. I mean, you could go to any ACPA or NASPA or a CUHO or regional conference, and there would be things about staff development. But there was little about student conduct. And so I remember when I got, it was probably a postcard, thinking, yeah, this is exactly what I need. I need to go to this conference. And so it was a combination of doing that marketing in ways that marketing was done back there, um, but then word of mouth. I mean, after I went once, I was hooked. So it's the word of mouth piece.
2: So, how do you think the idea to form a professional association for campus judi- judicial officers arose?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I was not part of that conversation. I only know what Don and others, and Sawney and others mm-hmm. have told me, which is at the Stetson conference, there were a group of people who, who do conduct work who got together in a room and said, we need to do this we need to have this kind of an association and mm-hmm. you know and Shirley Don Garing or Sawney or Ray Goldstone or any of the people who were in that room uh, I think I think probably the story has been embellished a bit <laughs> over the years <laughs> maybe dramatized a bit but people saw the need for it that hey there's there are some needs that are so unique to this line of work but then again you know the conduct offices were not as big on campus and so there was even less likelihood that people would have anyone on their campus who understood what they did because they probably were the only person.
2: So what do you think led the founders to feel like we needed something separate from Stetson Law and Ed conference? Like what were they well, not finding you know, so
3: there? So when I went to Stetson, and I love Stetson, I mean, it, it, it
1: mm-hmm.
3: made me think in some very different ways. But law in higher ed is so much more than, than conduct. It's so much more than student affairs. I mean, a lot of that focused on employment law or you know, international law, whether that's international students or international faculty or liability or a host of other things. Out of the entire Stetson conference, there might be one session that related to student conduct, if that. You know, Higher ed law is just so broad, it couldn't specialize. That's like saying, law school would prepare all higher ed lawyers. Um, Mm -hmm. They might take a little bit about education law but they're not going to take you know six classes in 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 education law or higher education law so there was a need for something much more specific, Mm -hmm. more in-depth.
2: So what were your thoughts then and then what are they now on the need for increased research and building a research base for student conduct?
3: You know, and, and that was part of our natural growth. You know, it was after, I don't know, maybe 10 years in the association where people said, hey, there's no body of research related to student conduct. We really need to plug that gap. And, and although there have been some members that have made some efforts, and that's where I think the, um, some of the research grants, you know, we established a research committee within then ASJA whose mission was to both encourage research And then to offer a research grant and choose you know some some projects to fund as well as the dissertation of the year, we have at different times made attempts at a professional journal that haven't always been the I mean we've moved forward and faltered and moved forward and faltered. Um, I think encouraging individual members to pursue. Research has been helpful, or, or that body of, of publication. I think you know, for example, Daisy and Jim taking on the editorship of the Student Conduct Practice Book, or encouraging. I think we we could do more to encourage that kind of research, but some of that has to be organic. I mean, there have to be people that were interested, are interested in it, um, who are gonna who have the time and are gonna be able to do it. But mm-hmm. you know, I. I hear people talk about that a lot. I think we need to ask the question, what research are we missing? And do we want to just do research for research sake? Or are there some particular things we need to know that we don't know? And if so, let's be intentional about that. And I see the same thing on our campuses. People go around preaching assessment or research. Or, and I think we need to ask the question, for what purpose? Because I do think it's great and I think it's needed. But I hear people say, well, we need to do assessment. Really? Well, what do you want to learn? I don't know. Then what's the point? I mean, I think we're starting at the wrong end of that. I think our curiosity needs to be what drives us. And what is it we want to know? And why do we want to know it? And or what would it help? It, what knowledge about what we do would help us to do a better job or be more effective? So I think we need to answer that question first, and then mm-hmm. move into the research.
2: Um, so how would we use this research to guide the practice for student conduct?
3: Well, again, I think that depends on the research you know the, the what do we want to know? why do we want to know it and And even then, the needs on each of our individual campuses, the cultures on each of our individual campuses are so very different. Um, what a Florida state finds regarding student alcohol use might be very different than what a community college in nebraska mm-hmm. um, it, it may not meet their needs, and so Um, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Perhaps what we need to do is go back to our membership and try to figure out from them what would help them. And again, I think we have to be careful about that question. You can't just say, what kind of research would you need? I would phrase it differently. You know, What would help you to be more impactful at your job? What knowledge, how do you know you're making a difference? I think that's the other question we want to answer with research. How do we know? So how do we answer the right questions? Um, But it's just in recent years we've begun begun to talk more about assessment and research within student conduct. So I think we're still kind of in our infancy there. Mm -hmm. And And what do assessment and research mean? You know, to me, assessment is one of those words that I think gets misunderstood and that we're a little afraid of. Kind of like the word hazing. Nobody really can, yeah. <laughs> no one can really um, define those words really well, but they sort of freak us out.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I think more conversation around them would be helpful.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So as the field continues to evolve, how do we teach practitioners to understand and effectively practice with the complexity of conduct situations, especially given the legal constraints of Title IX?
3: That's a huge question. We do
2: what we're doing.
3: We continue to talk about it, and we recognize that everyone has differences. And so we continue to offer academies. We continue to offer conferences. We provide space that allows people to come together, and they'll have those conversations on their own. Um, you know, I, I look, for example, at let's say the foundations track, and, and so, and I think we, it's critical that we not lose sight of those competencies. Those competencies were developed for a reason. Um, we started some work last year to expand on those competencies. That needs to be what's driving, um, what's driving for example, the academy tracks. You know, we, we need to look at that and perhaps engage in some more research ourselves to further define that. But I, I think we need to do our own research as an association. Um, but then we provide platforms for people to talk. And as I was saying, in the foundations track, so there's a set curriculum all day long. At the end of the day, we had communities of practice, and, meaning a group of know, 12 to 18 people from like institutions who get together. And I, you know, I kicked it off, but then I just sort of sat back and let the group go on its own. And that's what, and the beauty of having you know. I think my group is public institutions with fewer than 10,000 students. And so they're likely to have some of the same issues. They began posing questions to one another. Well, how would this work on your campus? Or how does this impact you? Or I've had this situation come up on my campus. Does anybody have any ideas for me? And all we're doing is providing the forum. We're providing the, the structure, and the participants will Take that and make it what they need it to be,
0: and I think that's our role. I think that's
2: it. That's for it? the question I had. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this very special episode with Mary Beth Mackin. Special thanks to our intern from 2015, Audrey for recording the interview. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Donna Haynes. Donna will be discussing working with student veterans in the student conduct process. I hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com.